Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. For those that, uh, that know me, this will not probably come as much of a surprise, but if you were to, if you were to have known like junior high Christian, right? We were to go back into the days when I was running around Curry Middle School in Southern California and then Craig Mont Junior High School outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And, and you were to be to know me and, and then I, I, you were to find out that I had some kind of, you know, I'd kindled some kind of regard for a young lady that was running around those same places. It would not have been uncommon or unthought, unheard of for me to think, you know what? I know what's going to win that young lady's heart. I know what's going to grab her attention. A mixtape. Yeah. Yeah. And if I was, if I was to make a mixtape, okay, back then, right? If I was to make a mixtape um, and I was really trying to pour out my heart to this young lady, uh, it would probably, at that time, it probably would have been a mix of maybe some Chicago, uh, maybe some new kids on the block, some Color Me Bad and some Garth Brooks, right? It would, have, it would have been kind of this diverse collection of things, okay? Because, you know, when you're, when you're making a mixtape back then, making a mixtape, or, or today if you're making a playlist, right, what you're trying to do is pull together songs that convey a message or a theme, right? They fit a theme. Right? Maybe it's love. It could be any number of things, but maybe it's, you know, it's young junior high love, but the idea is that you can pull from a variety of artists to get a fuller appreciation for something, for that topic, for that idea, for whatever it is you're trying to get across. And that's what we're doing in this, this series, Christmas play, Playlist, is, is looking at this idea of how, how do we convey a big idea, but in, in maybe some different ways and some different songs. In fact, the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, which it, it very, I mean, we can find the Christmas story in a lot of places, but, but probably most often when we turn, maybe it's on Christmas Day, we turn to read the Christmas story, we turn to Luke's gospel. And what we find there is in the first two chapters, he's telling of Jesus's background and, and he's giving us this Christmas story, but he frames the telling around four songs, okay, four songs. And so over the next four weeks, that's what we're going to do is look at these four songs, this playlist of sorts in which Luke has compiled in order to give us a, a more full understanding of the character of God. And so this week we're looking at Mary's song, and then next week we'll look at a man named Zechariah and his song. Uh, on the 18th, we'll go to... Uh, superhuman or, or not human song, but the angel's song. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll gather here and we'll look at Simeon's song. And, and what these four songs do is they, they see similar things in different ways, but through different lives and perspectives. And so today we're going to turn to Mary's song. And you see that the title of that is Magnify. And the reason is that Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. Okay, it's a, a Latin term, and it's the Latin term that uh, features prominently as you, we begin to read Mary's song. So I'm just going to really briefly read it for you here. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord, or my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. And so from that, that just that first 
statement of this, this exclamation of praise that from Mary, we get this idea of that magnificat or mag- magnifying God. What does it mean to magnify? Okay, well, here's dictionary definition. So number one definition, to extol or laud, that means to lift up or praise. It's, it's this idea to cause to be held in greater esteem or respect. A second definition, to increase in, signif- in significance to intensify or exaggerate. And then the third is to enlarge in fact or in appearance. Now, I would say when we mention the idea of magnify, now, if you're in church, maybe you start to go to some other things, but if you just were to start talking about magnifying something, probably our minds would go to that third definition first, right? To enlarge or uh, to enlarge in fact or in appearance. And when you start to talk about ways of magnifying, there's really two ways that we tend to magnify something. One is, to, and in both, well, in both cases, the, the point is to make something more clearly seen, right? To, to take something that, for whatever reason, you have a hard time seeing, make it more clear. But there's two ways. The first one, you can make small things seem big, right? That, that's what we do with a microscope. So if I am looking and I, through a microscope, I take something that is really small and I blow it up so that I can see it and, and it all of a sudden looks very big. So I want you to see a picture, okay? If I look at that, wow, that's pretty frightening, okay? But do you know what that is? It's a fly, but it's a fruit fly, okay? That's a fruit fly, right? And if I was to see a fruit fly not under a microscope, Okay, I'm annoyed, but I'm not scared, right? Like, I mean, I'm super annoyed. They don't make no doubt, right? It's annoying to have fruit flies flying around, buzzing around the kitchen or wherever. But I'm not, I'm not scared. But you put it under a microscope, and if I didn't know better, and I saw that thing coming down the street at me at that size, I'd be afraid, right? I wouldn't enjoy that. I, I don't know about you, but I, that wouldn't seem enjoyable to me. Okay, so we, we can take small things, and we can make them big. We can intensify them. We can exaggerate them. That's, that's kind of what, what can take place. But there's a, a second way of magnifying, and that is to bring big things into view, right? Sometimes the hard part is something is really, really big, and we need to magnify it. We need to bring it closer. We need to magnify it so that we can actually see it. This is what we do with a telescope. We'll get there in a second. But it's important to recognize God isn't small. When we're talking about the character of God, God isn't small. He doesn't need us to magnify him in this microscope way, right? Where, where we're, we're making him look bigger so that we can stroke his ego. So he'll seem greater than he really is. That's not the, the issue at hand. But God can seem far off. He, he can seem like he's so big and so far away that it's really hard to get a good glimpse of who he is. He can seem too big for us to bring into focus without reducing him in complexity, right? Without kind of creating a version of him that just doesn't seem very impressive. And you think about this. When we talk, start talking about telescopes, our, our, I think our minds tend to go to the stars, right? You go to planetary systems, those kinds of things. Now think about it. If I say, well, I, I want you to see a star, and I show you this picture, okay? Have I shown you a star? I have. It's a symbol, though, right? It's a symbol. I've taken something that we look up in the night sky and we see, and I've tried to reduce it to something that we can understand better. I've tried to make it understandable. But in doing that, I've completely, re- I've completely gotten away from the, the complexity and really the greatness of it. It's fine as a representative. It's fine as a symbol. 
but it can really reduce just how impressive a star is. But if instead I say, hey, I want to show you a star, and then I'm able to show you a picture like this because of a telescope, all of a sudden now we're looking at something. We've made something more clear. We've brought it into view. We've helped get it into focus. But we realize, man, it's even more grand than we ever knew. So something we already know is special, we start to see it even better. We see its magnificence even better. That's the point of magnifying in the way that, that we're, we're told in that definition, to extol or laud, to cause to be held in greater esteem or respect. We want to do that kind of magnification that we do with a, tele, a, with a telescope. And so that's what we're concerned with today, this telescoping type of magnification. That's what we see Mary do in her song. And so what I want to ask is, how can difficult things, how can the difficult things that we go through provide us an opportunity to bring God's greatness into focus so that others can see it better? Okay, that's, that's what we're going to address today. And so I want to turn to Mary's part in the Christmas story and her singing response to it. We're going to back up a little bit before we get to her song. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, and again, feel free to either pull it up on your own Bible, or or if that's on an app or whatever, or use the Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 1, you can see in that Bible, it'll be page 921. That makes it easy, okay? Luke chapter 1, verse 26. What we're told is a little bit of a background of what takes place. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Uh, the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, now, I'm going to stop right there for a second. It says, we're told that this happens in the sixth month. This isn't like June of our month. That's not what is, is being referred to. This is the sixth month of her relative, of Mary's relative, Elizabeth, who we found out a little bit before this is also pre- is pregnant. Okay, And this, there's been this amazing thing that's taken place in Elizabeth's life. We're going to look at uh, that next week in more detail. But this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and that's when these things take place in Mary's life. So Elizabeth's already six months along, and then the things we're going to see next, that's when they take place. So verse 28, it says, The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, a couple things. One, at this point, this angel addresses Mary, and he uses a term to describe her. He uses it twice. He calls her, he says, you found favor, and he says, you are the favored one. Now, it's important when you see that word favor or favored, I think where my mind tends to go is favorite, right? I tend to think of the word favorite. So we think, oh, look, God found his favorite woman, Mary. It's his favorite. And so he came to his favorite, which means that Mary must be just so special that God said, you know what, Mary, because you're my favorite, because you've done so many good things, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to give you this this starring role in the Christmas story. If we hear it like that, we read it like that, we miss something really important. 
See, when the Bible speaks of favor or being favored, it's not about being the favorite. Though Mary has, there's much to be praised, and we will praise a lot of her character. But the point here is that Mary is not the favorite, but she is the recipient of grace. To find God's favor, to be favored, is simply that God has bestowed upon her this grace, this gift. It's not because she's so special in and of herself. But it's that God, in his providence, and his wisdom, has said, I'm going to give you this gift. I'm going to bestow this grace upon you. And so the angel comes and says, look, you won the lottery here. You get to be the one. Now, what's so interesting is Mary's, you know, even though she's been told, hey, you're the favored one. You're the, you found God's favor, right? Again, she doesn't hear this as, oh, you must be God's favorite because she's not exactly thrilled to have been picked. Okay, that's not her. Her first reaction is, what we're told is, she is deeply troubled. She's bewildered. Okay? She's, I mean, one, she's got an angel talking to her. This doesn't happen every day. Okay? This is, Mary's not going, oh yeah, another angel. Okay, what do you want? Right? That's not what's going on. So there, there's something special taking place. And then she's told, even though she's told, hey, you found God's favor, she's like, well, I'm not so sure that, that I wanted to win this lottery. So what are you, what's this all about? Right? So we, we get it a little bit. Let's see how it goes on. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. So here what we find is God is up to something really unusual and really big. I want you to hear Mary's response. Verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Now, Mary's just done something pretty phenomenal. And we're going to see again more and more how she handles this news. But, but there we are now. Once you see more, the story goes on. In verse 39, it says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. So here we have the second supernatural message passed along to Mary, confirming to her that God is indeed doing something extraordinary. At which point... Mary, now having heard this message from the angel, now having heard this message from her relative Elizabeth, Mary is overwhelmed with a desire to praise God. And so, borrowing language from Hannah, a woman who lived hundreds of years before her, a woman who knew the pain of longing for a child and then seeing God come through. You can, you can look at that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But using, borrowing from Hannah's language, she composes her own song. So let's Read that, Luke 1, 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So as we consider Mary's situation, and we consider the song that emerges from that situation, as we consider again this Advent season, what it means that Jesus has come, I want us to walk away today with, with one big idea. Okay, we're just going to look at one idea pulling from what Mary has just proclaimed. The idea is this, that when life is messy, we can count on God's mercy. Okay? When life is messy, you can count on God's mercy. I want us to see that in Mary's life and in her song. So what, we're t- what I said is, one, when life is messy. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us, and I certainly don't know, everything that goes through the mind of a woman receiving news of an unexpected pregnancy, okay? I don't know if that's news to you, but I'm not some expert here, okay? All right? Especially, I mean, especially I don't have the, the Scripture's not especially like telling us everything we might want to know about an unexpected pregnancy pregnancy that's as unusually unexpected as this. But I do think that we are on good footing to consider three big, messy questions, okay? You think about what's just, what's just transpired. I think there are three big, messy questions that, that Mary had to have dealt with. One, we know she dealt with. The other two, I'm guessing, okay, just based on what's taking place here. The first one is a science question, right? The, the question is, how will this happen? Right? How is this going to take place? Now, somehow, again, we're not even told, but somehow when the angel comes and delivers the message that she is going to have a baby, somehow she understands that Joseph is being cut out of this process. Okay? We don't, we don't know how, but, she's being, but she knows. She, because she has that question, how is this going to be? Since I've not, I know how this works, right? Again, important to understand People that lived back then, okay, they're not idiots. Right? I mean, she's not like, oh yeah, an angel's here again to visit me. Of course, because that's what happens all the time. And she's not going, oh yeah, of course, I'm just going to get pregnant magic- magically, because you know that just happens all the time, right? Like, just because people lived long ago and didn't know everything, didn't have a microscope or a telescope, and, and didn't know about germs quite the way we do, doesn't mean they were idiots. And it's really important because very often we tend to see that as, well, if people don't live where we live or they don't live in the time that we live, they must not really know how this all works. But Mary has a very legitimate question. How is this going to take place? I mean, this one Mary really has no category for. Right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how this is supposed to go down. So that's important. First, she, she has that question. Like, God, you're, you're, I'm on un, in uncharted territory here. So what's happening here? So there's the science question. How will this happen? There's also this, this second question, the, the reputation question, right? H- how am I going to show my face, right? How will I show my face? Now, 
I've got a, a 12-year-old, almost 13-year-old daughter. I know now I've had another daughter that was once 13. If you were a 13-year-old girl today, and we're, we're guessing that Mary, at the time that this happens, she's somewhere probably 13 to 15 years old. If you're a 13-year-old girl today, your livelihood has an inordinate, unfortunate amount to do with how others perceive you, right? I mean, that, that's, just, that's just a massive part of what it means to be a 13-year-old boy or girl, but especially if you're a 13-year-old girl. But if you were a 13-year-old girl or woman, or just a woman of any age for that matter, in the time when Mary lived, your reputation and how you were perceived in that community could literally be a matter of life or death. Really important for us to, to understand that. Now, we're told elsewhere that Joseph, her, her betrothed, her good, as good as husband but not formally yet husband, that Joseph perceives that the most honorable thing he can do, and he is an honorable, honorable man, that the most honorable thing he can do is simply divorce her quietly because he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand. And all, again, all he can figure is something's gone wrong here that, that shouldn't have happened because she's pregnant. And so the most honorable thing he can do is simply divorce her quietly rather than dragging her name through the mud. And so he's trying to do all he can to spare her, but the facts are, given this situation, she's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really hard for her. And so in his own pain, he's trying to spare her because she's not just a name. She's a real woman. It's a real woman. There was a real 13-year-old girl that centuries ago, millennia ago, had been told these things and was facing this unexpected, just unbelievable pregnancy and trying to figure out this question, how am I going to show my face? Because she's a young woman whose life would be heavily, heavily impacted by the opinion of others. Okay? So that's the second question. How am I going to show my face given this situation and given the times I and the place in which I live? Which leads to the last question, which is a provision question. Right? How will I show my face? But more importantly, how will we make it? I mean, here she is. She thinks, hey, I mean, she, she's not quite sure what's this going to mean? Because now I'm, I'm doing this. This is God's going to do this thing. But, but how are we going to be taken care of, especially if I'm no longer going to be married to Joseph? She's got all these questions, right? How are we going to make it? She, she is from a city of Galilee, we're told, named Nazareth. Okay? This is not, like, this isn't Overland Park. Okay, like this isn't like you're not growing up if you're in Nazareth where people are going, oh, you're yeah, you've got some means, right? You've got a lot to support you. That's not what's going on here. This is a backwater town. Mary's not coming from a whole lot. And so and you add then onto this that she is an unmarried woman with a baby. There is not a lot of upward mobility for somebody in that situation. So this question, how are they going to make it, right? She's got these questions. And again, I don't know all that, how this all goes down, but you can imagine being in this situation and the things that are going through her mind. Now, I want to, I want to make clear, this is a different time. It is a different culture. And so it's not so unusual. I mean, Mary's getting ready to be married. And she, if she's getting married, then she's expecting that probably children are coming at some point in her near, near future. And she's prepared for that, but that's, that's part of how she grew up. This is the way things were done in this time and place. 
But I want to be clear. So it is a different time and culture. But, but in this case, the favor of God meant that this woman, this young woman, took on a heavy burden. This was a heavy burden she was going to bear. So I bring all that to your attention to, because I want us to do this. I want us to make no mistake. This is a messy situation. And you know even more messy? God's behind it. God's behind the whole thing. It's a messy situation. But what does Mary do? See, when life is messy, she and you and I can count on God's mercy. What does it mean? We're going to come back to what it means to count on, but what is God's mercy? Mercy is similar to grace, similar to this idea of grace. But here's a helpful distinction. R.C. Trench, he lived a long time ago, but he wrote this. Grace is concerned for man as guilty, but, but mercy is concerned for man as he is miserable. So in other words, grace deals with our guilt before God, but, but mercy deals with the fact that we find ourselves in a mess. And so we need God's mercy. Now, Mary's song gives us not so much a definition, but a picture of mercy. Mary mentions it multiple times, but she, he, she gives us a picture of mercy. I want us to listen again to the words of her song. Verse 48, she says, Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. See, there's this reputation question. And what does she say? He exalts the humble. She's wondering, what's this going to look like for me? Well, God, God's the one who exalts the humble. It goes on, verse 53. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. And sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. You wonder, how is God going to provide? Well, she knows that he's the one who fills the hungry with good things. See, that's what we see. There, there's nothing, this is nothing new with God. He's not somehow different when Jesus arrives on the scene. In fact, these are the very same things that Hannah sang about. That's why Mary borrows from him. 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah says, The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noble men and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. See, here's this picture of mercy. It's, it's compassion that leads to action. It's compassion that leads to what we see here is this great reversal. What does God do? He, he brings down the supposed mighty. But the humble are exalted. He, he shows those who think they are rich in themselves just how poor they are. And the hungry are filled. This is what God's mercy looks like. He provides help for those that understand themselves to be helpless. And so, when life is messy, we can count on this mercy. We can count on God's mercy. What does it mean to count on 
God's mercy. I want you to again see Mary, see how she is counting on the mercy of God. Chapter 1, verse 38, what does she say in response to the angel? I am the Lord's servant. May it happen, may it be done to me, or happen to me as you have said. What what does Elizabeth say about Mary? Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Believe that there would be fulfillment. And then what's the result? The result of her counting on God's mercy. The baby in her womb is just days old at this point. Okay? I mean, we, we don't know exactly, but, but not six months, but just days old. This baby is, is growing in her womb. But again and again, she says, he has. Again and again in this song, he has done great things for me. He has done a mighty deed. He has scattered. He has toppled. He has satisfied. He has helped. Again and again and again, God has done this. She has no idea of all that will await her and all that will await her son in the fulfillment of this promise. But she knows that what he promises is as good as done. She can count on it. And so... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, her soul, because she is counted on God, her soul and her spirit are changed. She accepts her situation, and she depends on God's character, and she grows. Worship grows. Notice she's not trying to plaster a fake smile with with hopes that it will seep down into her soul. No, she puts her very heart in God's hands based on what she knows of who he is, what he has promised in the past, and what he has called her to and promised now. And as she gets a clear glimpse of God's graciousness, she overflows with song. She overflows wanting others to know what she is experiencing, to gain the same view that she has. So, when life is messy, we can count on God's mercy, but, but we have a problem counting on God's mercy like Mary. Right? It doesn't always go so easily, right? To count on God's mercy, you have to believe two things. One, you have to believe it's actually God's, like it's His mercy, which, which implies some things. And you have to believe it's actually for you. And there's this tendency to not do those things. There's three, I think, non-magnifying mercy responses that we tend to deal with. There's a tendency, first, to see God's mercy as beneath us. There's a tendency sometimes to think, you know, this is beneath me. I'm not that bad. I'm not guilty of anything that's a very big deal, right? If mercy has to do with being mis- my misery, well, I, there's, I'm not really miserable. Look, life's pretty good. God can think about some other people. That's fine if others need this, but it's not for me. I've got things pretty well figured out. Sometimes we think, you know, mercy's just beneath me. For others of us, we think it's beyond us. We think, no, mercy's beyond me. I mean, God bless Mary. Maybe a young girl without much life experience, without having done much to make her own life messy, can receive mercy. But I'm too guilty. 
I'm too miserable. You don't know all the things. God's not really interested in people like me. Mercy is beyond me. Some of us think we're happy to believe that mercy is for us, but we forget. And we're talking about God's mercy, it's God's. And so we think, it, think that mercy belongs to us, right? We're happy to be a recipient of God's mercy. Bring it. But there's a difference between counting on it and demanding it. There's a difference between being the child who depends upon his parents and the child who is demanding of his parents. Now, we can appeal to God based on his character. We can ask him why. You think about it, in our own relationships, it's okay, it's okay for kids to say, Dad, you said this, and, and hold us to the things that we promise. That's okay. Now, I can do that petulantly. I can do that in a way that's really a whiny, you know, again, entitled kind of way. But it's perfectly fine for my kids to say, Dad, you said this, and hold me to what they know of my character and what I've promised. It's also okay for them to obediently respond to an order and say, yes, sir, but may I ask you why? That's the thing we always had to deal with as our kids were growing up. I'm okay with you asking questions, but questions can't be the smokescreen for you going off and doing whatever it is you want to do. It can't be, I'll obey just as soon as you satisfy every desire and design I have on why I need to actually do this. See, no, that's not obedience. That's just you trying to get what you want. And make me feel bad for asking it of you. That isn't, that's not how this works, right? I don't negotiate with terrorists. That's not how this is going. Okay? So, but it's fine for you to say, yes, I will do that. But, but can, I, can I understand why? And in the same way, that's the case for us with God. But we don't get to set the terms for how God's mercy comes to us. So to count on it is like Mary to accept that mercy often comes through the mess and not around it. It's just the way it goes. Again, it was a mess not of her own making. And God's bringing mercy through that mess, not around it. See, in each of these cases, whether we think it's beneath us or beyond us or belongs to us, in each case, we don't magnify God. Instead, what do we do? We create a simplistic representation of His mercy. It looks something like it, but it has none of the magnificence. If we think that mercy is beyond us, we see it not as a gift, but a status symbol. It's only given to the best among us. If we think it's beneath us or we think that it belongs to us, we see mercy as a sort of bribe, right? It's only to be accepted on my terms, and then God can be privileged enough to have me as part of his posse, right? That's not mercy, and the result is that God is dispensing mercy really to try to just make himself seem greater than he really is, right? It's that false kind of magnification. He doesn't need us to prop him up, but we need to see him in all of his magnificence. And with this distorted view of God and his mercy, we're only capable, and this is the other problem, we're only capable of receiving or giving the same distorted mercy. It doesn't actually help us, and it doesn't help anybody else who might receive it from us. But the whole point, the whole point of God disrupting this young girl's life was to bring about 
the one through whom she and all of us could receive true mercy. And so each of us have the opportunity for this description of Christmas to be true for us. Titus chapter 3, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Are you going through difficult things? Whatever questions you're facing, this is no exaggeration. You can count on Him. He cares, and He's kind, and He's closer than you may think, and He's more than capable. And so if you find yourself in a mess, a mess that is of His making or of your own, you can count on His mercy. And as you do, as we do, we have an opportunity to bring God's greatness into focus so that all of us can see it better. So let's magnify the Lord together and let our souls rejoice in Him. I want to encourage you to take steps in trusting God and counting on Him this week to learn to be as Mary was And count on the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this season. A season of remembering and of anticipating. And for the opportunity we have to be reminded of your mercy. Help us to count on it. And help us to honor you as we do. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.